Uh, we're going to be talking about one of Jesus' many miracles again this morning. This is a messier and a far less tame version than the one we had a few weeks ago. It is intense with a capital I. And, uh, but the call is still the same. Try to inhabit this story. Put yourself in the character's shoes or sandals, as it were. Who do you resonate with and why? Those are good questions. And uh, what questions does the Lord bring up, bring up as we go through this passage, as we explore it together? So I encourage you, as the Holy Spirit gives you those things, write them down and look at them during the week, okay? So pray on them, wrestle with them, lather, rinse, repeat. You follow me? Okay. So we're going to be in Mark 9 that read, Fred just read. Uh, this is a story that is present in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 too, but Mark gives it the fullest treatment. Let me give you some context. This story follows immediately on the heels of the transfiguration, okay? So we've got James, Peter, and John, the two sons of thunder, Peter. They step into a hornet's nest of activity that's been going on while they've been up beholding the transfiguration of the Lord. So I hear this as almost like one of those record scratches in the story. There's this beautiful, amazing scene. Uh, down they go. Down the mountain they come. Watch as they enter the fray. See what's transpired. Okay, that's a little bit of context. Another thing in this passage I want you to watch for, and I'm going to give you the first one for free. Um, listen for the Old Testament echoes, okay, and the mosaic echoes. And I don't mean art, I mean Moses. Listen for the mosaic echoes here. When Moses came down the mountain, he found the camp of Israel in great disarray, didn't he? golden calf, anyone? Perhaps. Mark ain't no dummy. He wants us to hear this resounding echo really strongly. So here's Moses. Moses was the great mediator of the old covenant. And down from the mountain comes Jesus, okay, the mediator of the new and better covenant. And in his absence, the devil has been a meddling. So uh, we'll pick it up at verse 14 here. That's a little context of some things to keep your eyes out for. Uh, the scribes are using this opportunity to a the disciples because they can't heal the boy. And they're arguing, it says, heatedly. And we get the strong sense that the disciples are way above their spiritual pay grade right now, okay? They're kind of out of their depth. And think of this. They've publicly tried to heal this boy and they can't. So think of the public shame here as the scribes heap this on them. Now, do you think they were relieved to see Jesus? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a lot of bit. Uh, I suspect they were quite relieved. I doubt the scribes felt the same way. And here's what's interesting. Sadly, so if the scribes really wanted to prove their righteousness, if they really wanted to prove their true authority, why not heal the boy? Okay? Why not do that? Why not end the controversy? Wouldn't that have been the right thing to do? Clearly, they were more concerned with being right than with doing right. So there's that tension there. When Jesus arrives, this is verse 15, it says the crowds were greatly amazed at his arrival. Now, why is that? Well, can I just perhaps, just perhaps suggest another mosaic echo? I'm wondering if there's something still unusual that remained in his countenance. Because think in uh, Exodus 34, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was literally glowing to the point that folks were a little bit afraid of him. So perhaps Jesus' face was still aglow. I don't know. That's just conjecture, but it would explain why they greeted him with, quote-unquote, great amazement. And Jesus asked one of these questions, which is usually an invitation more than for him to gather information, because he knows what's going on. Uh, what are you arguing about? Okay? He knows what they're arguing about. But the father pipes in, and he tells his story. And this is interesting. He basically says, I came looking for you, came looking for Jesus, and instead, I received these, here's my commentary, very human disciples. 
I came looking for you, but I instead was received by the disciples. Now, there's a whole sermon in that. Can't go there this morning, but that's an interesting point, isn't it? So just kind of tick that box if it, uh, if it catches your interest. It's another sermon, but again, that's not for today. Uh, the father describes how the evil spirit muzzles the boy, how he torments him. He goes into detail about that, and he says the disciples, they're not able to cast it out. And literally, the Greek is, they were not strong enough to do it. Ouch. Okay? Thus, the scribes joining in and taunting and accusing. And Jesus, in 19, gives his famous reply, Oh, you faithless generation, how long must I bear with you? Now, Jesus, one thing we need to know here, he is partially quoting and summarizing Psalm 95.10, which says this, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. That's another mosaic illusion straight from Jesus' mouth. This quote is about the wilderness wanderings. You remember this? How there was a judgment against Israel for their unfaithfulness, how that lasted for an entire generation. But who is Jesus talking to here? Who's he speaking to? Who's, who's he rebuking here? I don't think it was the disciples, okay? He's going to talk to them privately later. That's kind of his fashion and pattern. He's not going to heap shame on him like the scribes do. Their fault isn't a lack of faith. It's something else, and he'll talk about that uh, towards the very end. So who lacked faith? Who's Jesus rebuking here, okay? Is it the Father? I would say partially. It seems from the wording of verse 23 that the Father at least partially culpable here. But I think Jesus is more indicting the scribes and any other self-righteous folks in the crowd, okay? That's who this blanket indictment is for. It's, 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 he just utters it forth, and I don't think it's aimed at any one person. It's just for those in the crowd who, who lack faith. And I would say in alluding to Psalm 95.10, which again is what he's doing in the wilderness wanderings, he's speaking to those of the old covenant who were unfaithful to the Lord's commands. Now, Notice how the scribes are more eager to lord it over the disciples rather than do a thing to help that boy, okay? That is a failure of living out the law. That's a failure. So the truth is the scribes lack faith here too, and I think there's others in the crowds as well, uh, though they believe they possessed faith in that sense. 20, uh, when Jesus, or rather, when the Spirit sees Jesus, we see him torment the boy even further. And you ever notice this? Evil spirits in the Gospels, they know who Jesus is. They recognize him, even though it's not always a verbal proclamation like in Mark 5. When demons see Jesus coming, they tend to stir up this torrent and give a last-ditch effort. It's like their time is short and they know it, so they cause as much damage as they can on the way out. Okay? Uh, this is the way Calvin describes it. This is good. The presence of Christ awakens them like the sound of a trumpet. And the demon raises as violent a storm as he can and contends with all his might. We ought to be prepared beforehand. Here's some wise advice. When the approach of Christ is met by more than ordinary violence on part of the enemy. Thank you, Calvin. Calvin's telling us something, okay? It's often darkest right before the dawn. The call issued here is to be discerning and watchful and also, I would say, unsurprised. Okay, be ye prepared for the enemy's pushback when good things are afoot. Luther has this great quote. He says, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. So where good things are happening, you, can, you better believe that Satan is going to be there to contend. And I want you to take note of evil strategy in terms of what it does to this boy. And this is unilateral. Evil seeks to mar God's creation. 
But Satan and his minions can't do anything to God. They can't hurt God. They can't harm him. So what can they do? Hit the Lord where it hurts. Target and attack his kids. Harm the most precious part of his creation, which is humankind. Okay? I love this because Jesus, ever the good doctor, again, asking a question he does know the answer to, but still issues as an invitation. Ever the good doctor, it's like he's taking the patient case history and he says, how long has this been going on? Until I first hear it. But again, he already knows this. So in this case, it's a chance to invite the Father to name his desperation. Okay? Ever notice how skillful Jesus is at inviting people to name their need? Name your need. This is the beginning of what I'm going to say is an ongoing confession that unfolds as we keep on reading. How long has this been going on? And the Father describes it and says, uh, you know, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Let's contrast the Father's response with another one in Mark. In Mark 1 with the leper who says, if you will, you can make me clean. There's a robustness of faith there. The Father's not in that place. Perhaps he believes Jesus is a a prophet, a wise teacher. We don't know, but he has this doubting plea for help. Uh, You know, if you can help me, please do something. And Jesus basically says, if, (laughs) question mark, exclamation, question mark, exclamation, right? Anything is possible for those who believe. Now, if you hear this as a gentle rebuke, you're right on. It's a gentle but clear rebuke. And there's a better paraphrase I, I'm going to put to it. That if you can of yours, why, everything's possible for those who believe. The issue here is not Jesus' willingness. <laughs> it's not the issue. It's the man's lack of faith in him. That's the issue. And a fuller confession needs to be spoken. And Jesus seems to turn up the heat and wait to see what the man's going to say next. Because notice, he doesn't heal the boy yet. That's not where he starts. He waits for the Father to pour out his heart, which the Father does. He cries out, and some manuscripts say with tears, he articulates the poverty of his faith, that famous line, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, this, friends, is an honest man. I love this because he accepts Jesus' rebuke and his estimation of him. He takes that. You won't find a finer sinner's prayer than this, and certainly not one with that amount of brevity. Now, think about this for us. Even within believers, aren't there places in our hearts that haven't been fully converted yet? Does that make sense, what I'm saying here? Let me, let me describe a bit. Maybe this will help. There are territories within us that still need conversion, that still need transformation, that still need healing. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This man has a divided heart. You ever have one of those? Do you? You have a divided heart sometimes? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I do. I do. So there's places of faith and places of unbelief. And God works on us, right, towards an ongoing full conversion. This is sanctification in miniature. This is a poignant, honest, powerful confession of faith. Lord, give me the power to believe where I doubt. Help me. (laughs) Help me. It's like speaking out of both sides of your mouth. But God hears it takes it, does something with it. Now, I want to say that though this might be a picture of sanctification, I think it's an even greater picture of salvation. One author says this, no better illustration of the doctrine of justification by faith could be found than in the Father's words here. Not bad. Let me paraphrase his words again. Then, Lord, help me just as I am 
for I'm a doubter. And let's witness the kindness of God that comes forth, the kindness which Romans says brings us to repentance. His coming to Jesus and honestly naming his state of affairs showed meager faith, and that's enough for Jesus. That deceptively short sentence is his confession. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And what follows, Jesus meets him. We see exorcism, we see healing, we see deliverance. Picking up in uh, verse 25, bless you. Um, I command you to come out of him and never to return. It's interesting. It, it, the text says as the crowds are building, Jesus uh, heals. And it almost seems like he picks up the pace. It's maybe a little abrupt. Why? Well, I would say because generally he didn't throw pearls before swine in terms of healing. Miracles weren't for the looky-loos or those who were hungry for sensationalism. That just wasn't Jesus' style. In fact, he often deliberately avoided crowds when he sensed false motives in, in, in his midst. You can see that in John 6. And it's interesting. Uh, the true test of success for Jesus with situations like this was often what I call the leftovers. What I mean by that is, what about the group of disciples who still followed him after basically everybody turned away? Lord, where else would we go? For you have the words of life. Now, think about that, the leftovers. That will change our outlook on church growth a little bit. <laughs> That'll change our outlook on church growth strategy a little bit. But again, that perhaps is another sermon. I leave that with you. <laughs> um, again, as I said a few weeks ago, uh, miracles are a sign of the kingdom and the sovereign king. And we talked about Jesus being sovereign over all of creation, over our bodies, over the wind and the waves and all that stuff, but he's also sovereign over Satan and his minions. One Puritan author says this, Satan might be the devil, but he's God's devil, okay? Jesus is sovereign over all the spiritual realms, and he exercises that authority here. But notice, and this is, again, we're, this is, God keeps us from formulas. Deliver us from formulas, O oh Lord Jesus. <laughs> uh, and here's what I mean by that. Notice not all healings are about possession, Okay? There's a call for wisdom. There's a call uh, to the discernment of spirits. Those are the much-needed gifts of the Spirit. Uh, same principle that not all healings are dependent upon personal faith, though some make it that. The point is that Jesus heals, period. Jesus heals. There's not a formula that we sometimes want to go in there and find, which is really just us wanting control, trying to find a way con to control and control God and to get the result that we want. As in Genesis 1 and 2, where God's words create life, Jesus comes in and his words restore life. They dispel the darkness. He brings order and beauty from chaos. And he takes this poor boy's tattered, tormented existence, and he restores him. Come out of him and never return. Now watch this. Watch the imagery here. This is 26. So the demon resists and causes a kerfuffle but finally leaves the boy, okay? And to the point that they think he's dead. So the boy's lying on the ground. They think he's dead. Follow the imagery here. Until Jesus takes him by the hand and he raises the boy up. Think about the resurrection imagery here, will you? From death to a new life because Jesus spoke the words of life into him and he raises him up from the grave. Quite the picture. Quite the picture. Interesting, we're not told the reaction of the crowd, the boy, the father. Uh, some miracles we are. Instead, after this one, uh, Jesus retreats to a house to have some uh, time with the disciples. And this is towards the end of the passage, 28, 29. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
in private, and I think out of kindness, he instructs the remaining nine disciples when they uh, come inside this house. This is school. School's in session. This is one of these rabbi moments, teachable moments for the remaining nine. Now, this scenario must have been very confusing for them. Why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they do it? Even nine strong, they couldn't exercise this particular demon. The reason I say it's confusing and beguiling is because in Luke 9, which is before the transfiguration, Jesus had given them authority, remember this, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they do it? They only get an enigmatic reply, and ergo, we only get an enigmatic reply. Uh, This kind only comes out with prayer, and some manuscripts add, and fasting. There wasn't a lack of faith, okay, as with the Father. Theirs was a lack of prayer. Jesus doesn't elaborate here. Now, who else wishes he would have? Just a little bit. Yeah, we can count hands later, but I so wish he would have elaborated here. Here's why, guys. All we know is it pays to be someone of mature, timely prayer. This is the disciples' need. Okay? If you don't think prayer is powerful, you have to wrestle with this story. Again, quote, they were not strong enough to do it. They weren't strong enough to do it because they didn't engage deeply in prayer on this occasion. Now, thankfully, there's still hope yet for these disciples, isn't there? Cheryl Forbes says this, Somehow we never see God in failure, but only in success which is a very strange attitude for people who have the cross as the center of their faith. Yeah, amen to that. No kidding. Okay, so let's get to the so what of this passage. Uh, Some would say the crux of it is about healing, and we could focus on that to be sure. It's worthy of our focus, but I honestly think that healing is more of a supernatural byproduct here. I really do. I want to suggest to you that what lies at the heart of this passage is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that is the heart of this passage, of what's going on. Um, And I'm going to give you some questions here, several. So again, the ones that the Holy Spirit gives you a nudge on, write them down and chew on them this week, okay? So first sort of area I want to deal with. His confession is one of need and hunger and desperation. This is very close to the bone. There's no pretense here. There's no saving face. This is a no BS thing. It just is. You come to Jesus with this level of honesty, okay? Do you bring this level of hunger and and need to him? Are you in touch with that? Might be a better way to say it. That's the beginning of true worship, true conversion of the heart, to realize that without Jesus, you're basically stuffed. Now, I'm talking about more than self-awareness here. That's helpful. Uh, But this is more than self-awareness. This is more than needing Jesus for fire insurance. This is needing Jesus to come and mend what no one else can. So are you hungry? Are you thirsty for this? How in touch with you are you with your need of him? Okay? That's the basic thing I'm getting at. It, because this is, more than, this is about more than healing. It's about a fundamental state of our hearts. It's about a posture of heart. So that's one area. Are you cognizant of your need of him? Are you desperate for him on any level? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? That's one. Second part, and I think this really builds off that. What areas in your heart still need conversion? What areas in your heart still need conversion? Where does the gospel need to come and be preached afresh and received by you? That's the second part, second set of questions. The promise of God is this. He's going to take unbelief, and he's going to play the divine alchemist, okay? He's going to turn unbelief 
into faith, a faith that we see will set the world on fire. So let me end here, and this is a quote from Dorothy Sayers, and uh, here's the promise for those of us with a divided heart, which I know is all of us at one point or another, not just when we're converted, but often afterwards. So this is the promise for us with a divided heart, those of us who utter, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And hear this, we'll end here. We find God continually at work turning evil into good, not as a rule by irrelevant miracles and theatrically effective judgments. Christ was seldom very encouraging to those who demanded signs. And God is too subtle and too economical a craftsman to make very much use of these methods. But he takes our sins and our errors and turns them into victories as he made the crime of the crucifixion to be the salvation of the world. Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.